This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey there, Jason here. And throughout this month and until March 23rd, I'm running a series I'm calling Jason Plays Favorites. These are some of my favorite episodes from the past five years, by no means all. And today I'm playing you Marlon James. Often when an interview is finished, what I remember most is not exactly what was said so much as the presence of the guest. And Marlon has a wonderful presence, this kind of warmth and expansiveness about him. He's a big guy and he fills the room and in some ways he makes the room bigger by his presence. But listening back to this, the other thing that really caught my attention is this idea, you know, that he says pretty early on in the episode about how we are told or we somehow come to believe that we're not allowed to have magic or the fantastical in stories anymore after we grow up. And, you know, part of his work and part of what he's trying to do with his current series is put that back into the writing, give that back to people. And part of what that involves is being an unreliable narrator or giving you unreliable narrators, being an unreliable storyteller, pulling the chair out from under you, as he says, because you can't have magic without uncertainty and surprise. And so he talks about how in many African stories, it's a trickster telling the tales. And so, you know, you go in knowing not necessarily to believe everything that you're told. And this creates a kind of state of readiness um, for wonder. I, I find that I find that really fascinating. And also, uh, just as a side note, around 44 minutes in, he says he tells this story, which is one of my favorite things ever, of growing up in uh, Jamaica and how he learned to love heavy metal. It's uh, it's pretty special, and it's worth waiting for. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. At this point, it's very rare that I read something and find myself thinking, this is something new. This is unlike anything I've ever read before. It doesn't have to be written in hieroglyphs or be some kind of three-dimensional interactive reading experience with pull-out tabs and half the pages upside down. That kind of formal experimentation, in my experience as a reader, more often ends up being gimmicky and annoying than exhilarating. In fact, paradoxically, the wow, this is something new experience often comes along with a sense that this new thing has somehow always existed in your dreams, if nowhere else. Marlon James, the Jamaican writer who won the Man Booker Prize for A Brief History of Seven Killings, has done something in his new fantasy novel, Black Leopard, Red Wolf, that's unlike anything I've ever read before. The first book of a trilogy, it's been described as an African Game of Thrones and likened in scope to Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, but the stories within stories it tells and the shifts in voice and perspective thrust you into a seething, hallucinatory, morally ambiguous world that's part ayahuasca dream and part blacklight nightmare, 
anchored in a rich African mythology that swirls away from all those elves, wizards, dragons, and goblins, all those well-worn tales of light versus darkness. Welcome to Think Again, Marla. Thanks for having me. Let's start with and then quickly get over the Game of Thrones thing. Um, <laughs> first, first of all, I, I feel like I feel like I heard you use that, like maybe on I Facebook a, a long time ago. I might have. You, you know what? I'm trying to remember when I first used it because I, because I, I use it because it's, it's, it was good shorthand. Yeah. Yeah. I, I so I said it for this magazine, which I can't remember who it was for. Thinking this is a pretty limited interest magazine. Okay. Um. Turns out everybody who reads it works in media. <laughs> so, <laughs> so everyone started running around going oh African it, Game of Thrones. Yeah. It yeah. exploded so much. George R. R. Martin emails me. Says I heard you're writing an African version <laughs> of my book. And he was delighted about it. But I thought, this is how far this has gone. Um, and, you know, and they're thinking, you know, some devoted Game of Thrones reader is going to read this and troll me for years. The Game of Thrones underground may very well crawl mm. out of the woodwork and be like, this mm. technically is not anything like Game of Thrones. No. <laughs> so, you know, but, but, but at the same time, I mean, I did say it. And I said it because... What I like about Game of Thrones and what I think Game of Thrones gave a lot of people permission to do is to stick with this world of fantasy and make-believe, but also grow up. Right. And I think we still have this idea, certainly in the West, that fantasy, make-believe is something you're supposed to outgrow. So fantasy fantasy lovers are geeks. Right. And of course, those are important, geeks and the nerds and so on. But the, it still ties to this idea that you're supposed to let go of the fantastical which is probably why magical realism was such a shock for people. That's right. Mm. It seems like a lot of people are, you know, in various ways trying to reclaim the right to bring fantasy and magical elements mm. into serious literature right yeah, now. Yeah, you know? and for, 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 for lots of reasons. I mean, we're living through some crazy stuff. Sometimes it's only crazy stuff can explain <laughs> it. <laughs> but I also think we're following the cues of people like Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Right. And Jose Donoso. This is where we have religion, where we have mythology. These are crucial aspects of what speak to us as people. We all have dragons. We all have fairies. We all have shapeshifters. We all have things that go bump in the night. Yeah. We have things that scare us and things that make us dream. And um, the idea of shutting all that out mm. always struck me as ludicrous from when I was a kid. So I knew I was <laughs> going to end up back here eventually. I feel like Black Leopard, Red Wolf, it's very disorienting at first mm -hmm. and then you kind of like reorient and it is in that sense like a dream and it feels like being thrust into that sort of super violent in media res kind of dream space that it mm -hmm. puts you into and all those fantasy elements mm -hmm. then open you up in a way that you don't feel open when you're in a realistic fiction world where you're like, oh, yeah, I know that. I know that. Mm -hmm. I know where I am. I know, you know, somehow the disorientation is valuable there. I think a, fant a good fantasy novel is still a seduction. It's like a good horror film. A good horror film is a seduction. Mm. I mean, how is a man going to lure you into the, the black, you know, the, the house on the hill? Right. You know, it's a lure, particularly the stuff I write, because um, I still tell some really dark stuff. Yeah, you do. But I'm a big believer. <laughs> There's a lot. There is a lot of a lot you know, of violence and a lot. Yeah, a lot of death. A lot of yeah. There's, yeah. A, there's a lot of sex too. And a lot of um, sex. Yes. But but you know, I'm a I'm a big believer that violence should be violent. I think sex should be sexy. Mm. I was talking to somebody about what I call indie film sex, <laughs> and I was like, this is gonna shock most of you intellectual people, but working class people actually enjoy sex. <laughs> you know, they're not. It's not some coldly compulsive thing that they do and then smoke a cigarette and talk 
talk about their wages. You know, it's, it's, and the same thing with, with, with violence. I love cartoon violence as much as anybody else, but violence has consequences. I usually give my totally out of the water Led Zeppelin example when I talk about violence. And I talk about how mm. Led Zeppelin is, of course, our gold standard for heavy metal, for hard rock. Right. That's what they are for us. But almost every Led Zeppelin album is nearly 60% acoustic. Mm. Anybody else, that's a folk album with some loud moments. Oh, that's right. But the loud moments, rock and roll, black dog, resonate for so long and they rebound across the record for so long that you think this is like a maximum volume record. So there's a difference between yeah. resonance and preponderance. And I do believe violence should resonate. And it does resonate both in this book and in Brief History of, mm. of Seven Killings. Which did warn you by saying killings. Yes, it did. It did. <laughs> it did. And that book starts off right from the get-go mm. with an extremely intense mm -hmm. scene. But that too, I mean, the, something about the realness and the mm -hmm. intensity of the violence, the non-cartoonness of the violence in your books, that too shocks the reader, not for the sake of shocking them, but mm -hmm. shocks them into presence, at least for me, for this mm -hmm. reader. I'm shocked into presence and, and a weakness in mm -hmm. a way that really thrusts me into the world. Yeah. The difference between a scene as intense and one that's merely just going for shock values that you, we become numb to that. It becomes a pornography, actually. If every scene that I write, every scene like that that I write, if people are jolted, then it's, then it's working. If they become numb, then, then it's gratuitous. At yeah, that it's point. gratuitous, and I've slid into porn. <laughs> right, right, right. right. Um, I do sort of. I, I, you must be taking your pulse as you're <laughs> as you're writing to be like, am I? Where am I on the, yeah. the porn to? Mm -hmm. But I mean, presence, I, but like, you have to risk it. You have yeah, to risk, yeah. you have to, if you're going to write love, you have to risk sentimentality. If you're going to write sex, you're going to have to risk pornography. I, I thought when, when I had um, Lauren Groff in here, mm -hmm. she was talking about how, you know, she's like, all the writers I know, all the great writers I know, they're all like really lovely people, but mm -hmm. you have to be a bit of a killer to be a writer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was wondering what you would think about that statement. Yeah, like, it's true though, because <laughs> I have to make some, un I have to make some unsentimental decisions in a book and I have to write people doing cruel things to other people yeah you kind of have to be like this basically a loving but terrible mother and there i guess there also has to be a degree of like not giving a fuck about the blowback mm. that you might get from this mm. person or that person oh, or the I other out we can there. Fuck on this oh yeah let's we can I've been so decent anyway <laughs> let's go back and say, yeah it's it's you have for me when I read a novel and when I write one, the reader has to get the sense all bets are off. Uh -huh. Just because this character is great doesn't mean he's not going to die on page two or page 10. And I think that sense that, damn, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. To come back to Game of Thrones is like when he killed Ned Stark. Yeah, yeah. And we're like, what? Right, <laughs> right. You know, I mean, can and, then, you and then Rob Stark, you know, and yeah. then it's just like, what? You're like, you, yeah, everyone but, we put our hopes mm. in, everyone, yeah. Yeah, but can you imagine what, in the early 60s going to watch Psycho and not knowing what it's about and you're following the protagonist <laughs> and she's murdered? Right. <laughs> it disorients the reader. It's like, oh, yeah, we're not playing. It brings you into presence. It makes yeah. you ready to, like, absorb whatever's coming next, cause, mm -hmm. which is the same you know, even though this is a fantasy novel for grown-ups, that's mm. the same, that's what childhood is as well. You know, that yeah. constant presence. Mm -hmm. But we also, even when we're really being excited by a film or a book, 
we're still waiting to, to slip into that comfortable space. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a hero. Right, right, right. The hero is going to win. Yeah. Or final girl must make it to the final frame of the movie. And, right, and right, so right, on. right, right. And there's a certain, even something we think is good. There's a part where we think we've slipped into discomfort. Right, right. And I certainly go to great pains to <laughs> rip that, that chair out every single time I possibly can. And at the same time, I have to say that, you know, you've got this structure in Black Leopard, Red Wolf of storytelling. So the, the narrator is Tracker. Mm-hmm. Tracker is telling a story mm-hmm. sort of in a trial kind right. of situation. He's being interrogated. Mm-hmm. And then within that, you have other like sub stories that come up. There's the story of Sadogo, the, mm-hmm. the giant, and the continuing theme of the, I'm going to say it wrong, Griot. Uh, that's fine. Is that right? I think it, usually you, you drop the T. It's, very, it's, it's actually more French than African. In French, they probably say, I mean, in, in a lot of Griot, African languages, like, like Jezere or so on. Uh, yeah, so Griot is as much French as, yeah. So there's the idea of that kind of like wandering storyteller, mm-hmm. and there is that feel to this overall, mm-hmm. you know? So we are, in a sense, even though like you're pulling the rug out from, from under the comfortable expectations, mm-hmm. we are also in story time. We are in story time. And one big difference, I think, between a lot of African stories and a lot of Western stories is that Western stories, the narrator establishes authority. I'm telling you the story, so it must be true. Mm. And we believe that. That's, that's just how we are. That's how we were raised. In, in a lot of African storytelling, it's a trickster that's telling the story. It's a deceiver that's telling the story. And you already know that. Gotcha. So you already have to read it with a little skepticism. You all have to read it where, you know what, I'm not going to believe you. Mm. Um, but entertain me anyway. And so the whole idea of what is truth is something the reader or the listener has to decide. Um, Oh, that's interesting. We don't even get that in Western literature until like Nabokov and Lolita. Yeah. Those unreliable narrators or whatever. Yeah. And this trilogy, you know, is not a part one, part two, part three. It's three different witnesses telling the same story. And there's no part four coming where I go, oh, this is what really happened. The reader is going to have to pick. Okay, so it's a little, there's a Rashomon. <laughs> it is a Rashomon, yeah. you know, without the, without the conclusion. It's like, you're going to have to decide who of these three narrators, which of these books is the truth. Oh, that's super cool. Or maybe they're all true. And Tracker, who's the narrator of this book, is a really interesting character and very much like a morally hard to get a handle on mm-hmm. kind of character. Like he's... First of all, everyone's a killer, like almost mm-hmm. in the book. Like, mm-hmm. So th- we can just start with that. Like everyone just, it, not not every single person, but almost everyone is. Everybody's is a, got some bodies under there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They got some. Some bodies. Some bodies to account for. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, we don't quite know. We don't really know where we are with Tracker in mm-hmm. some ways because Tracker doesn't know where he is with himself. Yeah. Tracker is, is so rootless because all the things that would have been roots have disappointed him or have have not really come through for him especially family and with that that foundation pulled out from under him he is sort of wanderless and roaming he's got that like shapeshifter friend the leopard Mm -hmm. who's like a friend and a shapeshifter in more ways than one you Mm -hmm. know friend than not friend yeah and and it, it surprises it surprises Tracker more than anybody else when after being drifting from family so much family finds him. And I was thinking about that. I mean, again, going back to something like Lord of the Rings, which mm-hmm. I loved as a child and young adult and read a million billion times and whatever. Mm-hmm. But you know, and 
Tolkien's language is great and those worlds are incredibly fully built and everything, but good is good, mm -hmm. evil is evil, and both literally and maybe socially speaking, black and white narrative. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got your orcs on the one, like all the peoples that are not, there's a sort of racialist narrative going on mm -hmm. in a sense. I mean, with the mm. elves and hobbits being like sort of British and Nordic mm -hmm. peoples. And then you have all the, like all the enemy races are these mm. described as swarthy yeah. or whatever. Yeah, well, Tolkien, I mean, Tolkien can't help being British. Um. <laughs> yeah, I'm not blaming him for being yeah, British either. He, he, I'm just saying you're doing a different thing yeah, that hadn't been and, uh, done in fantasy. I, but to write this, I had to let go of a lot of that Westernness, even though I'm hugely influenced by Tolkien. I had to let go of a lot of that. I had to let go because that's my background. I, I didn't grow up in Africa. I grew up in Jamaica, basically absorbing America all my life and reading all these stories. I mean, at some point I knew more, I knew more about Robin Hood and King Arthur <laughs> than the average African epic. You were in an educated family. They were Yeah, we were very middle class yeah, yeah. in the suburbs. Being bored, watching MTV. Yeah, yeah. Um, Fab like, Five Freddy. Yeah. I, I saw you referenced yeah. him in the. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like any kid in the world in the eighties. We, I, yep. I'm convinced, if you're an eighties yep. kid, you had the exact same eighties everywhere. <laughs> where was, where Beat was like, Street. Uh, oh my god! I saw Beat Street in the theater. Oh yeah. Everybody I, say Ramo. Um, how about wait, wait, wait. Oh. Um, damn. That song it was UTFO. I had this like what, two, Roxanne, Roxanne. Yeah, with Roxanne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Roxanne, Roxanne, the Lady Roxanne. Devastator, and make you feel hotter than yeah. it is in Jamaica. Yeah, but then Roxanne tried to kill that, and then you had the final Roxanne's a man. <laughs> oh my god, I remember that one. Roxanne's a man. <laughs> yeah, we, the, we, we. What was that? That was summer of what? Eighty five. It was before the show. It was eighty five. Yeah, I remember that because before that, when I thought of hip hop, I thought of break dancing. After that, when I thought of hip hop, I thought of rap. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that mm -hmm. is so off topic. We're so gonna, off topic. I was but, trying to figure out what but, we were talking about. I mean, when about. you talked about everyone having the same eighties, I thought about mm -hmm. myself in the suburb of Bethesda, mm -hmm. going to Nantucket Island for the summer with my parents, and then mm -hmm. and then making them drop me off on the corner so that I could backspin on the street. <laughs> <laughs> with that plan, so you know, See, I had him dropping off a corner because I know anybody see me coming out of a Volvo. Um, <laughs> Anyhow, yeah. So going back to yeah, yeah so we, so yeah. <laughs> but but a lot of that that type of fantasy universe which I grew up in and I love and I still am devoted to, I had to let go of. Even things like um, how we associate night. Yeah. In the book and in a lot of the African cultures, midnight is called the noon of the dead. Mm. I say that to anybody born in the West without giving context, they already supplied context. Mm -hmm. You think of the witching hour, you think of zombies, you think of ghosts, you think of spirits. Right. Whereas Noon of the Dead is like that scene in Black Panther where T'Challa goes back and meets his dad. Right. It's gorgeous. Everybody's a shape-shifting panther in a tree and they come down and, and your really, really cool uncle comes to talk to you. So there's a connection with the dead that's right. a, that's a comfortable connection. That has as opposed nothing to, to do with eeriness. Yeah. It's not spooky at all. It has nothing yeah. to do with that. I mean, chances are your ancestor is way cooler than your parents. So all of those things we attach to dark, the witching hour, all of this stuff, evil, right, is totally out of whack with um, a lot of African mythology. In fact, a lot of them, it's high noon that's scary hmm. because a lot of villains aren't concerned with hiding. 
They're okay. like a sort of being secretive. So they're you're not, exposed. At high noon, you're exposed. You're visible. You're exposed. Like. And they have mm -hmm. no problem coming for you in broad daylight. Uh -huh. The African vampires don't shrivel up in the day. You know, it's like, right. they don't, no, they don't die. They don't burn in the day. They will kill you in broad daylight. It totally changes everything. It's high noon. It's like it's like being in the western. It's like <laughs> high noon is when people run for the hills and lock their doors. Right. You have to completely flip yeah. your ideas because because we have turned it into a whole set of conventions. And and that was one of the, the great things, challenging things, and fun things about writing this book. What did you know coming in about African mythology and like how did you go about, yeah, like mm. what was the research process? How much did you read, mm. you know? What did I know? I knew stuff that say, that carried over into the Western world that, you know, didn't die on the slave ships, like Anansi stories, yeah, I yeah. know Brer Rabbit, yeah, yeah. which people don't some people didn't realize is African. I knew the oral tradition because my grandfather used to tell me stories. I knew a lot about the Orishas because quite a few of my friends do Santeria and Orisha worship. Okay. Um, I, I don't know what Orisha is. What is it? Orisha are like a, one of the pantheons of African gods and spirits. Okay. And they're still being worshipped. They're, you know, a lot of Santeria, you know, is, you know, Orisha worship. I have quite a few friends who are Santeras, Santeria priests. So a lot of that I know just from being around people and my friends. Uh, one of the things that happened, that was a, one of the genesis of this book, we're talking about Fab Five Freddy. Um, <laughs> Fab put up a pic, uh, uh, this post of this guy who did these sort of fantastical renditions of all the Orishas. And okay. if you're like one of someone like me who geeked out on Greek gods, all I could think of is what, did I, what I would have given to be 12 and seeing this. Mm. And that sparked everything. So, you know, I just told him, like, you know, Fab, he remembers. Remember the time I put up that thing about Orisha? I said, like, yeah, dude, that's what started this book. Oh, man, that's um, so cool. Yeah. That's so cool. <laughs> Has he um, has he read it yet? No, I'm supposed to get it to him. All right, but so that so that's what I know, which still means I pretty much knew nothing. Yeah. So I had to research all of it. I had to um, go back into the history books, a lot of which were really racist and and hasn't aged well. Mm. Go back to stuff that Africans are writing about. A lot of it is also those primary sources, like who just translated an African epic. It's not going to be a great translation because these guys are not poets. Okay. They're scientists, and that's fine. We, um, we, we begin somewhere. Looking at those early translations, looking at recent archaeological digs, some of, those, some of that research is written in French. Whatever, whatever um, people have recorded. Right, you know, because a lot of the griots, I mean, the stuff they sing still aren't, still isn't written down. Are there still active griots who have oh, yeah. who have the like ancient legacy of oh, stories absolutely. going they're way still, back? Like, they, they don't, yeah. And do we have any sense of how far back some of the stories go that they're still telling? Or some go back quite a few centuries. Like the average griot in Mali can tell you the story of Sonjara. You know, basically the real Lion King, even though <laughs> right, right. Disney has already denied that. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, everybody in Mali calls him the Lion of Mali. His family is Simban, you know, it's like, uh. or the story of Askia Muhammad and any you know, of the African emperors and kings. A lot of powerful families had their own griot. Mm -hmm. Oh, and there's an interesting fake news sideline in the... Mm -hmm. uh, in Black Leopard, Red Wolf, where the king wants to have their own griots to mm -hmm. tell the story the, the way they want them the told way they want. and yeah. kill the other ones. Mm -hmm. 
And then, and because of that, there's this real underground that is in the book who yeah. they're out there trying to capture and exterminate because they know the real story and they're still singing it. That probably historically happened to some extent in some places. I mean, I guess you made that up, but... I made that up, but it probably happened um, <laughs> because this is before written word. Right. So the records are all in the mouths of a few people and either you're telling the story and changing it to suit me or I'm going to get rid of you. There's a beautiful bit in your book that I remember about the uh, about truth, and I'm mm-hmm. I I'll just mangle it if I try to say it. But <laughs> basically, that truth is truth, no matter whether someone wants to hear it or not. Yeah, it's independent. Water is wet, whether you want to believe it or not. You know, and fire will burn you, whether you want to believe it or not. Many people don't, and we end up with all sorts of things like <laughs> idiots killing themselves at Burning Man. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> It's funny, because on one hand, a character says that, but on the other hand, the book is surrounded by unreliable narrators. So truth still comes down to something you're going to have to define for yourself. You give us some geographical maps, but we don't get the clear map to the truth. No, that's your job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a reader's job. And I don't know how many of us, there. I know we're out there, the readers mm. that want the challenge, that want to feel like when you, because when I pick up a book, when I picked up your book and mm. I started getting into it, pretty soon in, I'm just like, okay, okay, Marlon, mm. I see what you're doing. Like you mm. gave me, you, you're giving us, it's both delightful, mm. but it's a challenge. But that's what, one of the things I've always appreciated from sci-fi and fantasy and speculative fiction readers, that they are mm. Um, mm. expecting a kind of a challenge. If you read, you know, Jeff Vandermeer's books. Right. But also... I just said, right, I just played that like I have, oh yeah, Jeff Vandermeer, yeah. I have no idea who, who that is. <laughs> So maybe you, you, you hero hero the Southern Reach trilogy. Hero the, <laughs> the Southern <laughs> Reach trilogy. The first one is Annihilation, which also is a movie with Natalie Portman. Uh huh. Okay. You know your lack of geekdom is showing. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> See, for me, it was like trying to read Brothers Karamazov early mm-hmm. on or something like that's Oh, we going high, bro. But I'm not. <laughs> no attack on fantasy or sci-fi. Mm. I'm just saying, like that's. That's what I mean when I feel that pushback yeah. from the author. I'm just like, all right, this is not, I can't sleep on this. You yeah, know? you're right. It's like, I mean, it was like the first time I listened to Miles Davis, Bitches Brew. Uh-huh. I thought it was going to be some easy listening, and I put it on and went to bed. Right. And I woke up in, a f- in terror. I was like, what the, f- what the fuck? I mean, it took the shit out of me. It's like, no, no, you don't, you don't know. You, you sit up and listen to this That's shit. That's right. That's right. Uh, oh, my God. I still remember. I, I was, like, almost screaming. I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah, Bitches Brew is a good, good yeah. analogy. Well, I was just into it all through writing this this book. Um, oh, yeah? Well, yeah? That would be interesting, actually. I'm curious. Like, mm. was there a kind of playlist of music that oh, yeah. was in the I background? Mean, like- I mean, I, I don't write in quiet. It's one of the reasons why I don't do writer's colonies very well. Because <laughs> if I'm in peace and quiet, I'm going to start chopping on trees and, and screaming at people. Ah. <laughs> I, can't, I, can't, I just can't do it. I've always written to music or noise. Like, I'll open a window to hear traffic. Uh. But this, I was listening to a lot of Miles Davis 70s stuff, a lot of Herbie Hancock 70s stuff. So a lot of, like, jazz, funk, that kind of um, really, really sort of blazing, crazy fusion. Not the bad fusion. <laughs> but, uh, so, so, you know, like a, a Herbie Hancock record, like Wandishi uh-huh. or Sextant. But I was also listening to a lot of German rock, like Can. I love Can. Yeah. I've been listening to the old stuff, like 1972, mm. 74. Like. So, yeah, so the records I played the most was um, Iji Banyasi. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, said yeah, the yeah. Tagomago a lot. Uh, Future Days, Soon Over Babaluma. Yep. What else was I listening to? 
man, usually that was enough. <laughs> right, right. Cool. Well, the real music and sci-fi, music slash sci-fi nerds out there can try to like trace those influences in the rhythms mm -hmm. of the writing. Good luck with that. <laughs> Let me know if yeah. you guys come up with anything. I think let's now go to the second part of the show where mm -hmm. we're going to watch these surprise video clips from okay. Big Things Archives and we'll probably circle back to some of this stuff, but we'll mm. see. Is this the part where my intelligence, the limits of my intelligence will show? That's right. This is a test. <laughs> we're, we're, <laughs> we're everything, these are three videos on very subtle gradations of quantum physics that we're expected to both analyze oh God, and understand. That was, that was going so well. Yeah. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So this is a video uh, interview with Jeffrey Sachs, who is an author and director of a center for sustainable development. I know that he's at Columbia University. And this is um, titled, Are You There, Jeff Bezos? It's Us, the 99%. One of the astounding facts of our time is the gusher of wealth going to the very top of uh, the wealth distribution in the world. It's mind-boggling. Mind-boggling to think of Jeff Bezos, for example, with a net worth, personally, individual net worth of, hold on to your chair, how about $163 billion? That's, that's a lot of money. It's, uh, I'm, I'm myself a, an Amazon a user. Uh, I think it's a awfully a good uh, uh, service and product that he's developed. But $163 billion in a world where a lot of his workers struggle to get by. A lot of the people in Seattle where uh, Amazon is headquartered are homeless, where there are incredible needs that for a tiny fraction of that wealth could keep millions of kids alive and in school. You have to say, all right, world economy is dynamic, but it's not really exactly fair and it's not really oriented towards uh, addressing everyone's uh, basic human rights and needs. What's happened to the wealth at the top it's amazing. Back in 2006, there uh, were uh, about uh, 700 billionaires or so. That was a lot, and they had a net worth, if you added up uh, all of their stocks and bonds and uh, other assets, uh, of something on the order of about $3 trillion. And I would sit there and say, oh my God, can you imagine this? 
And in just a dozen years, a dozen years, even in a dozen years with a mega financial crisis in between, the billionaires went from about 700 or so to now 2,208 on the most recent Forbes magazine list of billionaires. And their net worth went from around $3 trillion, which was absolutely mind-boggling to begin with, to $9.1 trillion at the start of 2018 when Forbes published the list. And now, almost surely well above $10 trillion, including this phenomenal wealth of Mr. Bezos, richest person in the world, uh, but many others. Now, Bill Gates, who is uh, far and away the world's leading philanthropist uh, because he was long the richest person in the world, and he and uh, Melinda Gates uh, very uh, rightly, generously, wisely, boldly, uh, in a visionary way, said, we're going to give this away, uh, created the biggest foundation in the world, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They've been putting in several billion dollars a year to fighting disease and doing a fantastic job. But consider this, in 2010, Bill Gates called on other billionaires, join in uh, and make a pledge, called a giving pledge, to give away at least half of your wealth uh, during your lifetime. And Bill Gates took that pledge himself. At that point, his net worth was about $50 billion. He's been giving away roughly $4 billion a year since then. And you might think his net worth has gone down a bit given that generosity, but his net worth now is $93 billion. So the wealth is such a gusher that you can give billions away and it just keeps growing and growing and growing beyond anything that most of us mortals can even imagine. I wonder if we are in a new rubber baron era in the sense that there is so much money being made. I mean, an unheard of obscene amount of money and, and the money's earned. You know, it's, 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 it's too easy to think something crooked might have happened, but this money's earned, they earned it. Right. But that's too easy. I think sometimes we have this idea that I worked hard for this money, so I should keep all of it. And that assumes a lot of things. It assumes that you were never the beneficiary of generosity, and that's probably not true. It assumes that as human beings, we don't have responsibilities for each other, which is also not true. That's not, it's not utopian. It's your, it's your survival. Um, well, I mean, you know, yeah. so you have a whole class of thinkers out there, mm. the sort of libertarian guys, which generally mm. it seems to benefit them mm. to think that way, who would say, well, in fact, no, we each, it is sort of every person out for themselves and the opportunity is available, you know, and that's, yeah, and they're saying that and yeah. then how beneficial yeah, that but is then Yeah, but then they have a fire and they call the fire department. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the fire department doesn't go, sorry, <laughs> first come, first serve. You know, it's bullshit. Yeah, it's they bullshit. don't have a private fire department. Yeah, yeah. yeah. well, some... <laughs> Sure Maybe do. They do, judging yeah. from the last LA, LA fire, some seem to have that private fire, fire department. 
But, you know, the thing is, a lot of this, this money, it's earned, but it's still earned from, it's, it's still earned with the help of social services and still earned with the help of resources that taxpayers pay for. And additionally, yeah. in a lot of these industries, it's mm. earned by disrupting mm. other industries and scaling things in such a way mm. that you can pay people less, yeah. you know, jobs oh, yeah. are fewer. I mean, mm. you, that is to say you're, you earned it in a way that has also disrupted the economy. Right. And, and for all the trickle-down that we've been promised by these mega-billionaires, it, it's not been trickle-down. Yeah. The 1% is getting richer and richer, and they're more one-on-one and 1%. But I'm going to guess the 10% have stayed in their same income lane. Yeah. You know, I remember one time some student being a jerk is like, with all the money I pay for my college education, I'm like, you ain't paying me with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, you know, but, but you know... In, in, your, in your class, he yeah. said this. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so talk about the last part of the clip that we, 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 we saw, Bill Gates. Yeah. The worst thing about a kind of corporate greed is that it ultimately is short-sighted. It ultimately is short. You're ultimately selling your own self short. Right. By giving away so much money every year, Bill Gates has now made even more money. So your lack of generosity, your lack of foresight is locking you out of the money, You out of real money. It's great you're making $2 billion. You probably could have made four. So I, I didn't really understand, and I'm not sure I necessarily buy the like implied causal link there. Like, oh, Bill Gates gave away this money, and now he has X, X amount more money, mm -hmm. suggests or implies that somehow giving the money away is what made him richer. But I didn't mm -hmm. hear the connection. I didn't hear the connection either, but I have a feeling he, he wouldn't be a single case. I'm more concerned with the idea that I don't want to let go of any of my money because I made it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you also have to ask, how much money is enough? How much money is enough? It's like, what are you going to do with that? And, Other than set your family into a major crisis when you die. <laughs> we need to look no further than like every book by Faulkner mm. to see what happens in the second and third generation. Yeah. And I'm not anti-capitalist <laughs> at all. I quite like earning money. I mean, I used to be in business too. I quite like I quite like earning um, earning money. But I mean, even if and you're looking only in terms of enlightened self-interest, right? The fact is, you're living on that same planet as well. If you are, let's look at New York. If New York continues this massive gentrification where they only seem to be gentrifying one percenters, you're going to end up with the very rich and the very poor. What does that mean? It means your firemen live in Wilkes-Barre. Uh -huh. It means your teachers, <laughs> teachers live on the far end of Jersey. San Francisco is already having a teaching crisis because no te they, where are you going to get teachers from? They can't live there. Right, right. But the thing is, Bezos and the, the millionaires and so on aren't necessarily the problem. There's also the rest of the world catering only to them. If your only interest as a landlord in New York is the 1%, well, one, you're going to run out of 1% soon. Two, New York's 1% in 2019 is not the 1% in 1979. The 1% in 1979 all lived there. None of them live here. They have no investment in the, in, in the welfare in, of this city. Right, right, right. The old robber barons at least had a sense of noblesse oblige. <laughs> right, right. You know? Yeah, they started foundations, the charity, Rockefeller, you know? um, yeah. and, 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 Carnegie and, and, Mellon. You know, yeah. They were not great people in some ways, but, you know, they were... Yeah, like, but you know. I will... I will, you know, I will give them that. What's the point having a one million, ten million, fifty million dollar penthouse, and you can't walk across the bodega to get a, you know, to get a sandwich? <laughs> What's yeah. the point to that? What kind of existence is that? 
Yeah, I mean, the other concern, the other thing I think about with this sort of thing is, yes, of course, if you have untold billions of dollars, mm -hmm. it makes sense to give a percentage of that wealth, a decent percentage of that mm -hmm. wealth to other people and, and, and help out because why not? And again, mm -hmm. what are you going to do with all that money? But I don't want to live in a world where that's where, where noblesse oblige is where the public safety net has to come from because then I'm mm. reliant on whatever Bill Gates cares about. Yeah, but we can't. You know, I'm, I'm not saying it's either or, but right. I don't want I don't want to privatize any kind of mm. social safety net. And it shouldn't be. And I'm sure there are conservatives who are thinking of that too. But I I don't know if it's an either or. I don't think there's a whole bunch of you know I don't think there's a huge American underclass just waiting for handouts so they can no longer do anything with their lives. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. But I wasn't. I certainly yeah. not suggesting that. Mm -hmm. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that for stuff like healthcare stuff mm -hmm. like you know just kind of basic quality of life stuff mm -hmm. that that should to exist in a thriving country right then that, that that should be we should be doing that mm -hmm. federally not just at the whim of billionaires yeah, but mm -hmm. i'd also but i'd also would appreciate if the billions billionaires spent more money there because all the money in the world couldn't stop steve jobs dying of cancer but some pretty intensive cancer research probably could have oh yeah so I totally agree. It doesn't mm -hmm. have to be an either or. Mm -hmm. And I don't want Bill Gates to close his foundation. Oh my God, no. <laughs> I think that's great. I just don't want that to be the only, I don't want a world predicated on the hopeful generosity of billionaires. Right, because they can take away the generosity and, where, and then where are we? Right. That's why this whole idea of little erasing your government little by little by little until there is none is ludicrous. How many more um, former presidents should they have diseases that they cut research funding for? Yeah. You know? <laughs> Yeah, like, right, 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 exactly. Yeah, until it stops. Mm -hmm. All right, let's take a look at the second clip. All right. All right. This is um, Damien Eccles, the author of High Magic, and it's why I wear my life on my body, basically about tattoos. Let's see. Tattoos for me, um, one of the reasons I started to get them is because when I was in prison, when you go to prison, they, they completely strip you of an identity. You know, you don't even have a name anymore. You're given a number. My number was SK931. That means I was the 931st person sentenced to death in Arkansas. To the state of Arkansas, I was not Damian Eccles. I was inmate SK931. They take your clothes. They take your name. There were even times when I was shackled to a chair and had my head shaved against my will uh, just to make you look like every other prison prisoner in the prison. You know, they don't want any form of identity, any form of humanity. So I learned that pretty much everything can be stripped away from you except your skin. That was why I started um, tattooing things that were meaningful to me, bonds I shared with other people, uh, you know, friends, um, anyone from uh, Johnny Depp and Peter Jackson, we got tattooed together to just people that were friends of mine in the tattoo shop. Uh, you know, it's like if you have a photograph, you can lose that photograph. It can be torn up. It can be, you know, disintegrate through time. But whenever you carry something on your body, it's almost like you have a suit of armor made out of the things that are meaningful to you. So a lot of the things I have on me were not only things that I shared with friends, like representative of bonds that I had with other people, but I started to also use talismans, sigils. What talismans are, we were talking about thought forms a while ago. 
Well, some things are really hard to visualize. If you want to put energy into manifesting something, you know, say for example, happiness. So you don't know what will make you happy. You just know that you're not happy at this particular time in your life. You're not happy with your job, but you don't know what job would make you happy. You're not happy in your relationship, and you don't know exactly what sort of relationship you want to be in that would bring happiness. You can use a talisman or a sigil to take a concept like happiness and break it down into a symbolic form that will bypass the conscious mind and can be fired directly into the subconscious because it just looks like a squiggly line for the most part. It looks like an alphabet that your conscious mind doesn't read. So it bypasses all of the thought processes, goes deep into your unconscious psyche, and can then work in whatever way it works down there. You know, I don't know how some of this stuff works. I just know it does work. If you break it down into just a symbol and then put the energy, put the chi into that symbol, you can manifest something that you may not necessarily be able to picture, you know, like happiness or protection or love. I even have um, one of my favorite ones is probably the one on the side of my neck. And what it is is a talisman that represents New York City because to me this is home. The second I landed here, the second I stepped off the plane, I knew this was the place I wanted to live and this was the place I wanted to die. I, I want to be buried here. I was just so happy to see Damien Eccles because uh, I was a kid when he also as a kid was falsely imprisoned for murder just because he loved heavy metal music. So, t yeah, that's a backstory I don't even know. So Yeah, it was three, maybe, I think it was three. I think it was three, t three teenagers. And I can't remember all the details, yeah, but yeah. I remember I was a kid as well and I was into heavy metal. And I was also told I was been listening to satanic music. I can see you having been into heavy metal. That makes I, sense. Listen, yeah. there was a documentary <laughs> that, that the church used to send to campuses all over the country. It's, it's, I think it's online. You can find it on YouTube, Highway to Hell. And it had things like backward masking and all these things. <laughs> and everybody in the room watching this documentary, you know that everybody was crying and calling out to Jesus. Uh. I was taking notes. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, that's what ACDC sounds like? I left that documentary about ACDC, about Wasp, about Slayer. Who the hell is Wasp? I bought Slayer. I bought Faster Pussycat. I bought, listen, I, that, nice. that, God bless, God bless the Jesus. Cause he, you know, he, I, I became a total metal fan on a, because of a documentary that was telling me not to go after metal. But as somebody who was really into metal and having to deal with all this, I remember one time I'm at a job, I'm an art director, and this woman comes to me and says, Man, I just want you to know I accept you as for who you are. I'm like, did I come across as gay again? <laughs> Which would be totally true. Then she said, I just want you to know, I don't care that you're a Satanist. <laughs> I was like, I just like Danzig. Doesn't mean I worship devil. How did she, she mm. was it your t-shirts? How did she know? I think it was all the Danzig records with those skulls, <laughs> okay, demon right. skulls on, on, on. Piled on, up on your desk yeah. at the job or something. Yeah. So that thing, and I, and I come from a very religious country. So that struck me. It struck me really hard what was going on with Damien and, and those kids. I can't remember what they were called. They were called something three. And people rally, really rallied behind it. And even all the rallying didn't change really bigoted minds against, you know, misfit teenagers liking rock and roll. And he mm. seems like a really thoughtful, interesting yeah. dude. Like, well, after you, after you go through atrocity, your only way out is to be philosophical about it. Yeah, yeah. And that was an atrocity. It's funny, because I go back and forth when I want to have tattoos or not. Yeah. Because I really love them, but black skin, you, you know, sometimes that can come across as really bad scarring. Okay. And I don't know yet. You only know by trying, so I don't know. 
But yeah. the idea of markers on his body to memorize is like when I memorize poetry. There are things in did, this did world. Did you do a lot of that? Do you do I used to do a lot of, of that. Yeah. Um, I still do it to an extent. Mm. But the idea of, of all these markers and talismans on your body, you, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's almost, it almost seems like he was doing self-care. Yeah, well, clearly, yeah, with mm -hmm. the love, you know, trying to, like, mm -hmm. basically brand love into his soul through mm -hmm. his skin. I mean, I, you know, yeah. the metaphysics of that, where mm -hmm. he was talking about that, like, obviously, from mm -hmm. his subjective perspective, like, that putting a symbol, like, we saw the symbol on his neck, and we couldn't understand yeah. how that represents New York City. But for him, apparently, that worked, that pathway to the soul or whatever. Yeah. And maybe he also needs reminders of the best of humanity, because Lord knows he's seen the worst. Yeah. And I think... When you've gone through that, you do have to kind of give yourself reminders that, yeah, you know what, people are actually great. All the things that he was branding on himself were things, were positive friendships, you know, mm -hmm. mementos of good stuff, mm -hmm. like you said. He's turned his body into a book. You know, he's turned his body into his journal. And I think that's something people don't understand about tattooing and modifying and branding and all these things that so, for some people are still on the fringes. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when a tattoo meant you were a sailor, you're a demonic, you're gay, or you're some sort of freak, and you need to go back to sea. I found it really interesting the way he talked about wanting to inscribe his identity on his body because they were trying to take his identity away from him, mm -hmm. when in fact, it often seems to me that fixity of identity mm. is one of our biggest problems as people hanging mm. on to who we think we are at any given moment i mean yeah, he's in yeah. an extreme situation yeah know? i think it's but there's a difference though there's a difference between letting go of identity and having it taken or stolen from you uh -huh. it's not about identity it's about consent if i freely that's right divest of it is one thing if you come and take it i mean that's rape you know it is rape and and yeah. the, and the, it's trauma and then the mm. res response to the self-protective response to trauma mm -hmm. is itself a form mm -hmm. of maybe necessary violence. Not to bring this back to my book. But there is a, a kind of reclaiming of identity that happened to me in reading, in re doing, in writing and reading and doing the research for this book. Okay. I mean, as a, like a, you know, a queer black dude, a lot of Africa is really homophobic. Yeah. It was really shocking and reaffirming for me to find how much queerness is in African history. This word shoga, mm -hmm. yeah, so yeah. like that. Which some people use as a pejorative now, but uh -huh. it was, yeah, those are the men, they were they were highly valued. For one, they're the only men allowed their own brides to be. Okay. And clearly everybody knew the deal. Yeah, we know nothing's gonna happen with you. <laughs> clearly they knew what they were who and, and, and what was, you know, what was their purpose. We're talking about throughout African history, like we're talking about a specific throughout, but I mean the, the part where I was reading a lot was prob probably like like medieval. Okay. Or a little part or, or medieval to eighteenth, nineteenth century. You know, pre Christian, pre pre Muslim. But this is you know, this is part of the whole variety of sexual experience and sexual fluidity and sexual orientation that was just considered part of just you know the whole tapestry of life in africa right and for somebody like me that was very validating so i can see the whole idea of identity being important if you don't know it or if it was taken from you so the way shoga is explained or at least the way tracker's situation mm -hmm. is explained in the book and again like tell me if i misunderstood anything but it's sort of like so I got the sense, the reading it, that it's like he wasn't circumcised. No. And therefore he had like the foreskin. 
was is, considered is better. like a vagina is is part a feminine part. Yeah, a lot of some... people, a lot of tribes in Africa, a lot of I'm trying to still think that. Right. That um, but that's how they justify female circumcision too. Right. Exactly, and that's in the in the, book, in the book too, as along well. with some pushback against that. Which well, is, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, I'm not gonna <laughs> condone that shit. The the whole idea that um, the foreskin is the woman and the man and. Uh, the clitoris is the man and the woman. Right. Fine, but if you believe in the gods, then you have to believe the gods don't make mistakes. So it's right, one right. or the other. Right, right. You know, lords, you're perfect, except for this big flaw in your design. <laughs> right. Try better next time. In between, we'll do your work for you. I'm like, that's bullshit. And there's the whole aspect which you bring out in the book of, like, removing women's sexual pleasure. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you mutilate the clitoris you yeah know, doing violence to their ability to enjoy yeah so you the, you described it or the character mm. that it was like it was like it man could man couldn't deal with the fact that she had both fertility the ability mm. to give to, to make children and enjoy sex mm -hmm. you know yeah they couldn't deal with it so they had to, they had to go something i was like come yeah, on yeah, no yeah. gods did that do you know how much sex the gods are having i was like <laughs> that was no no god came up with that bullshit I wanted to ask you maybe just before we wind up, you know, I read something somewhere that you said a long time ago about what writing was for you growing up. And it seems like writing was very much like a survival thing for mm -hmm. you, that you basically like wrote yourself into life. I figured, you know, that is, the, that is the only way I know of leaving the reality that I have and going into the reality I want. And for a while, it just meant writing worlds that I can disappear to. But then I thought I could be a writer or right. I could teach writers or I could I could use this as a way to come out of a, a life that was certainly killing me yeah and, and, and it, life was killing you because you were in Jamaica and you were gay and that was not okay but it was a slow death it wasn't it wasn't like um oh my god an anti-gay Gestapo is around <laughs> right, 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 right. um <laughs> you know I've never run into that my friends are all pretty damn cool uh, but it, it doesn't but you don't need that though yeah, it yeah. can still be a, a sort of stultifying it, it can be it can be, hold on. I mean, you're saying I'm going to be here like 90 years and never once be able to walk down the road holding somebody's hand. Like, mm. Those things, the little things that we take for granted that actually add up to quality of life is what I started to fear I'm going to miss. And then maybe also, I mean, you're growing up in a middle class family and there's that, there's that other slow death of just kind of like living and going to work and coming home. And yeah, not bird school, a, work, death. Not having a place to like just mm -hmm. pull all this crazy shit out of yourself and yeah, wrestle with it. Like, I mean, God bless people who can do it. But um, that kind of routine to me is also soul killing. It's one reason why all of us who come from the suburbs will never go back. <laughs> we made it out alive. That's a tattoo. Maybe we can both get. <laughs> <laughs> Suburbs never go back. Uh, Marlon James, thank you so much for being on, on my show today. Think again. Thanks so much. This was wonderful. I, I really enjoyed it. And Marlon's book, Black Leopard, Red Wolf, is unbelievable. And I am, now that I know that the three books are from three different perspectives, <laughs> my mind is completely blown. It's, it's in stores now, yeah? I think it's in stores Tuesday. Oh, no, it works. It'll be in stores now by the time I release this episode. So let me go back <laughs> to that and say it's in stores now. Thanks for listening. Jason Plays Favorites continues next week with one of my all-time favorite singer-songwriters and human beings, Anais Mitchell. She's the creator of Hades Town, the musical. 
And as you know, I'm leaving the show on March 23rd. I'm starting something new called Clever Creature on May 12th. And for occasional updates, you can come to my website, jasongotts.com. There's a little pop-up form that comes and you can sign up for my newsletter. I hope to see you next week. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.